We come, we come now to the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Please pray with me. The epistle lesson is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This ends the reading of the epistle lesson. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bella. Kara Tippetts is an author, a mother of four, a co-worker along with her husband Jason, and she had faced a very long battle with breast cancer. You can imagine the surgeries, the chemotherapy, the radiation, uh, everything that doctors could do to help doctors did. And as Kara and her family processed what God was calling them to live through, she invited those around her to join her on her journey through this seemingly impossible ordeal. How would she be able to trust God in the midst of sickness? And then, when it became clear that the treatments were not successful, how would she trust God in the midst of dying, leaving behind a husband and four children. You can imagine the thoughts that go through your mind with all of the pain and all of the loss and all of the sorrow and all of the fear and all of the grief, wondering, God, where are you in this? God, are you here? Do you see me? Do you even care? As her death approached, she wrote to those that she loved. She said, my little body has grown tired of the battle, and treatment is no longer going to help. The question of suffering, the question of pain, is not an academic, logical question, but is infinitely more personal. It's the experience that we go through. It's the actual suffering. It's the shame, the unanswered tears, the cries of anguish. These are things with which the early Christians were all very, very well acquainted. If you can imagine living in a world in which half of children don't make it to age five, in which anyone who is a parent also has children who are no longer 
with us. The thoughts of burying your own children together with all of the griefs that that happen in this life. The tearful farewells, the disease, the isolation, the shame, the difficulties in marriage, the heartbreak that accompanies parenting. Yeah, if you can imagine on top of all of that, dealing with all of the suffering of this life, those first generations of Christians faced sometimes intense persecution for their Christian faith. Uh, persecution that not, not just from the government, which was always sporadic, but the persecution that came from families when your family would reject you because you have rejected the household gods. When your family, your friends, your neighborhood, your community, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, would turn against you and, and separate you out saying, you are no longer one of us. You are not my spouse. You are not my father. You are not my child. You are not my friend. The suffering that came to the early Christians, they were a people deeply acquainted with grief. And they would have felt incredible pressure to defend their faith. When your faith is is under the gun, when you are a religious minority and everyone is pressuring you to fall in line... You then want to present your own convictions in the best possible light. You want your leaders to look competent, uh, above board, strong. You don't want them to look weak or incompetent or insecure. You either want it to be strong or you want to walk away altogether. Incredible pressure. And no one knew those pressures more than the leaders of the early Christians, because these leaders would want themselves to look respectable and competent, you would think, in order to maintain their influence over the church and to hold back persecution and to address opponents. And and they would face exceptional pressure. They'd be singled out for arrest, for abuse, the horrible things that happened to pastors in the first couple centuries of this era. In all of that, you can imagine the feelings when suffering comes, when persecution comes. When you face grief and loss, when you're trying to be faithful to God, you're trying to be faithful to Jesus with all the world arrayed against you. And then you find out that your child is dying. The pain, the suffering, the feeling of abandonment. What kind of leaders would be shaped by that kind of suffering? Does God love me? Is he there? Does he care? These questions come quickly in the midst of our tears. And we, we read an account in the gospel according to Matthew. It's actually in all three of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give this account of the early church's chief leader, Jesus, together with the early church's next generation of leaders, the apostles. Suffering. Abandonment. Experiencing that. In a place called Gethsemane, in a garden by Jerusalem. What we read in this account from the perspective of a first century uh, leader in some way makes very little sense. It makes very little sense that it happened. It makes very little sense from a worldly perspective that any of the disciples would have admitted it. And it makes even less sense that they would then not only uh, promote it, but publish it broadly within their scriptures. We're going to ask what's going on here, because what we're going to see is some really embarrassing stuff. 
about Jesus and the apostles, certainly from a Roman perspective. This is Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to read verse 36 through 50 if you want to follow along with me. In your pew Bible, it's page 1544. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. This is an account that would be very embarrassing with respect to Jesus of Nazareth for those early Christians in a Roman context. Why would they have included so embarrassing an account? It's embarrassing because Jesus is presented here as weak and vacillating and needy. I mean, think of how this contrasts with what we read of Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels. This is the same Jesus who drove all of the money changers from the temple courts. This is the Jesus who who spoke a few words and raised the dead, who restored sight to the blind, who made lame people walk. This was the Jesus who preached and left all of the people spellbound because he spoke with such authority. This was the Jesus who had been there for everybody else 
who had never asked anyone for anything but had forgiven his enemies, given compassion to those who were hurting. He was tender with those who were caught in their sin, and he brought deliverance to those who were in bondage. And then we look at what we see in this account in Gethsemane here and in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. They all share the same account, and what we see is that that after he's brought so much blessing to so many people for the first time, we see Jesus has real need. Needs, deep emotional needs. He needs someone at his side at this point because he's not sure he can face what he has to face alone. The man who was there for everyone else, when his hour of need came, he is alone. He is abandoned. His followers don't even stay awake for him. Uh, he's abandoned in his weakness. It's what we see here. He's certainly physically weak, but we also see he's emotionally weak. He is described as sorrowful and troubled. I mean, that's not exactly the kind of cart you want to hitch your, you you know, it's not exactly the kind of engine you want to hitch your cart to, so to speak. I mean, how many of you say, I really want to be a part of a church with a troubled pastor? I really want to join a new religious movement with troubled leadership. You know, Jesus is here described as troubled as well as sorrowful. And it seems like there's this dark cloud that has settled about him. There's, there's no sense of hope here in Jesus you know, in his prayer, in his experience, he's, he's fixated, he's preoccupied with this cup that he has to drink, and he, he wants the Father to change his mind. He, he says he doesn't want to do it unless, unless it's absolutely necessary. He keeps going back and checking. He asks God for something once, and God seems to say no. He goes back a second time, and he asks again. He goes back a third time and asks again. It's like, it's like your child who, who comes and asks you, you know, can I have some ice cream? And you say no. And 30 minutes later, they come back and they're tugging at your, your pants lug and they're saying, can I have some ice cream? You said, no. And then like, like 20 minutes after that, they're tugging at your pants leg. You're like, what? Can I have some ice cream? And you're like, no. And this is what Jesus is experiencing. He's going to the Father. And he's trying a second time. And he's trying a third time. He is troubled. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death overwhelmed, more than he could handle, perhaps, a dark cloud of despair in the midst of prayer. You know, everywhere else we see Jesus delighting in prayer. It's like he's speaking to God and he is feeling God's countenance, God's face shining love and and radiance upon him. Jesus delighting in the Father's presence. And now for the first time in his recorded lifespan, Jesus is praying And it's like he's not seeing the Father's delight. You're not seeing the joy, the hope, the strength. Uh, Jesus is already facing rejection by God the Father. The Father was perhaps already turning his back on his Son. He had already said, no, this must happen. Jesus was already abandoned by his disciples. They were falling asleep, and later in this chapter, they all scatter when he's arrested. And, and now he's beginning to experience abandonment from his father, that abandonment that culminates on the cross when Jesus is nailed between two thieves, identifying with sinners, bearing our shame, and crying out to the father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic, my God, my God. Not even my father 
my God, why have you forsaken me? This is an embarrassing public relations point for the early Christians in a Roman context. Put yourself in the shoes of those early Christians facing a hostile world, wanting their leader, their founder to look strong like a leader. You know, you compare this to the Roman ideal of fermitas or tenacity, strength of mind. The great Roman leader does not waver, does not flinch. He faces death unafraid. He shows no weakness. He does not second guess himself. He is driven and firm and unshakable. It's like the Roman general Lucius who authorized the brutal sacking of 70 towns through Macedonia in the kingdom of Epirus. He enslaved 150,000 people. And on his return to Rome, he was celebrated with huge triumphs in which the Senate awarded him the noble title of Macedonicus. That's a hero. That's a leader. And then we see Jesus, emotionally weak and troubled, overwhelmed to the point of death, second-guessing himself, going back to the Father again and again, despairing in prayer. And this was used against those early Christians. You know, uh, 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 um, the, the Roman you know, pagan apologist, uh, Kilsus, uh, in the late 2nd century, so, so probably 120 years after this was written, he, he wrote the earliest surviving treatise against the Christian faith, at least parts of it survive, uh, and he cited this very account. When he wanted to throw it in the face of the Christians, he chose the account of Gethsemane, of what happened in this garden. Celsus says, Why does Jesus shriek and lament and pray to escape the fear of destruction, speaking thus, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. See, Celsus sees Jesus as inconsistent, as cowardly, a messenger that hides away in a garden, blubbering at heaven in his weakness, rather than proclaiming his message with boldness and facing death unafraid. His depiction was seen by the Romans as cowardly, and in an honor-based culture, it was seen as lacking in honor and covered with shame. It was disgraceful, and the pagans threw it in the Christian's face. Why would Peter have sanctioned this to be written, even if it happened? Why would they put it in the Bible? Why would they tell everybody what's going on here? It wasn't the only embarrassing content in this gospel. Jesus then goes and dies by crucifixion, which was the most humiliating, shame-filled form of death. In Roman circles, it was said that you ought not even discuss it or mention crucifixion in polite company. And then, at the account of the resurrection, the first eyewitnesses were, were all women. Women in the ancient world, you know, their testimony was not valued in a court of law in either Jewish courts or Gentile courts. And yet the first witnesses recorded in these Gospels were the worst possible witnesses from a Roman or Jewish perspective because they were, they were unreliable. They were hysterical females who can't get facts and stuff like that. You know, that's how they thought. Why do they keep including all of this awful stuff that makes Christians look so bad in the ancient world? It took 1,900 years to get past this. You know, women were not considered reliable. Why all these embarrassments? Weepy Jesus, insecure. You know, that's what it looks like. 
the early Christians would only have recorded these embarrassing details if these embarrassing details were actually true and if their primary concern was to communicate what actually happened, not what they thought would win them an audience among the Romans. And so Jesus looks less than Roman here. Gospel writers made a lot of editorial decisions about what they included and what they didn't include. Why not throw in an I am discourse instead of Gethsemane? And yet they were burdened to say what's true. They weren't making up any of this. It's historical. We know it's historically factual because if the early Christians were going to make something up, they would have made up anything other than what we see here. It was embarrassing with respect to Jesus, but historically this would have also been a very embarrassing text with respect to the other leaders of the Christian church. I mean, imagine you're Peter or James or John, and you're actually trying to lead the early Christians, cobbling together all of these various disparate house churches scattered all around the Mediterranean, trying to get them together, trying to provide leadership. You know, what kind of leadership would you want to project? What would you want? You know, you would want to be presented in the Bible, which the reading You know, it's certainly in the gospel according to Matthew. You would want to look good. You would want to look confident. You would want to look polished. You would want all those passages where Jesus said, Peter, you are awesome. You have it down, and I trust that you're going to do a great job leading my church. But instead, what we have is this embarrassing account of all of the disciples failing Jesus. They had one job to do that night. Stay up and make sure Jesus isn't alone. And they couldn't do it. They're incompetent. They're failures. And, and it keeps happening. You know, you, you think how, you know, Peter, James, and John, they've abandoned Jesus here in his hour of need. And, uh, and, and just before this passage, Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him. In verse 56, all the disciples desert Jesus and flee. Uh, you know, looking at the job description of an apostle, Uh, These guys are doing pretty bad. And the question is, why would they let it get in here? Why wouldn't they cover it up? Why wouldn't they present themselves in a more favoring, flattering light? You know, and and it's all over. Jesus is, uh, you know, Peter is always putting his foot in the mouth. Jesus at one point calls Peter Satan. You know, get behind me, Satan. Now, how would you feel if Jesus showed up in St. Louis and he said, Greg Johnson is Satan? You know, that's not really very flattering. Uh, He calls them oligopistoi in the Greek, little faith ones. He says, are you still unbelieving? All of these unflattering, embarrassing references. You know, and there's the theory that, 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 that the early Christian leaders, the disciples, would have invented these biblical documents in order to give them a, a, a leg up, in order to get power and authority and strength over the early Christians, in order to, you know, so that, that, so that these are basically PR documents for the early Christian leaders. But you look at the details and you know, gosh, it is not so. They make themselves look horrible here. Now, granted, 30 or 40 years has lapsed from the time this event happened until Matthew was actually published, maybe less. We don't know exactly. Um, You know, a generation has passed. And something has happened to Peter, to James, to John in those intervening years that has changed them. 
You you think about how earlier in the gospel they were arguing over who gets to be at Jesus' right and left on on thrones in his kingdom. They were arguing about who was going to be on top, who was the greatest, who was the strongest, who was the smartest, who was the most loved. And by the time this is written, they are totally okay distributing biblical documents to all of the churches that make them look incompetent and like idiots who don't really believe Jesus very well. So what happened? Something happened. They had experienced Jesus, and they had gained a freedom to own their failings, even publicly, even in a permanent record. In fact, they seemed to have relished it. They seemed to have wanted it in there because any of them could have prevented it. Uh, but they no longer had to justify themselves. They no longer had to measure up. By the time this was written, Peter didn't have to prove anything. Jesus had saved him. He could be honest about being a normal, normal, marginally competent sinner that was loved by Jesus and and used by God, even as a leader. Yeah, we have this built-in drive to justify our existence and, and to make our lives matter, to be someone, to prove ourselves. And there are a thousand and one ways that we try to justify our existence through, through our career or through our relationships or through the family that we create and gather around us, through our, our wealth or our success or going viral on Facebook and 15 minutes of fame looking clever, having the perfect house, the perfect yard, the perfect physical appearance, the perfect body that's not going to last, the perfect clothes that you have to keep replacing, the degrees, all those letters behind your name. It's a never-ending performance treadmill. And if you don't get off it, it's going to devour you. And here you're writing, you're reading the records of a group of men who encountered Jesus and Jesus got them off their performance treadmill so that they could be losers loved by God. And that was enough. That was significance. The only set of eyes whose whose approval they needed had already approved them in Christ. Only the gospel can do that. Uh, Only the gospel. It gives you the grace of self-forgetfulness, not, you know, acting like you're the worst person on earth, though you, you could be. Somebody's got to be. But, but, but it's actually, you know, humility is actually not, not self-negation so much as self-forgetfulness, where you're, you're just focused on God and other people, and, and it's not about you. Uh, I read about uh, Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy. Uh, an acquaintance of his was following uh, uh, Dan Cathy around on a tour of new restaurants that were under construction, and and along the way, after one uh, particularly messy tour, they were, they were both filthy. They were covered in dirt and sweat and construction dust. And, and so they darted into a Taco Bell next door to the building they were building to uh, clean up in the restroom. And uh, as this acquaintance was uh, stepping out of the door, he noticed uh, that uh, Dan Cathy had pulled a wad of paper towels from the Taco Bell dispenser and was cleaning and polishing all of the sinks and wiping down all of the toilets in the men's room. Now, this is the CEO of a major corporation, and he is in the competition's filthy restroom. But, you know, he didn't think how it might make him look. It's, it's the grace of self-forgetfulness. He just saw a restroom that needed attention, and so he cleaned it. And it didn't matter that Taco Bell was the competition, and it didn't matter that he was the CEO. He didn't need to look powerful. He wasn't trying to justify himself. That's what the gospel does. It it changes us as it changed these apostles. And by the time Matthew wrote this, these leaders felt safe, looking incompetent and weak because they knew Jesus was their competence and their strength. So how'd that happen? 
how did it happen? To know that, you've got to understand what was actually happening at Gethsemane. Realize what the cup is. Uh, This is not just the fear of dying that Jesus is dealing with. All sorts of people, thousands and thousands of people had faced death, even the worst death of crucifixion. You know, that was happening for centuries. there's, There's something more that Jesus is facing, something more than capital punishment that's coming down the pike. What was the cup? The Hebrew prophets uh, came to use the cup as a metaphor for the wrath of God, the rejection of God, God becoming your enemy and opposing you utterly, God turning his back on you. Isaiah 54, you will drink the cup of his fury and stagger. The cup is described in John's Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, as the cup of God's wrath that is filled with the wine of his fury. The cup Jesus was facing, the cup he would soon drink, is the cup of God's anger, the cup of wrath. And he must drink the fury of God's opposition to all human cruelty and hate and betrayal and sin. This is what Luther called the great exchange already beginning in which I who have spent my entire life sinning, word, thought, and deed, I've never loved God with all my mind, all my soul, all my strength, you know, for, for 10 seconds. I am, I am sinning right now continually. We all are. That's how broken we are. We're so much less than what humanity was meant to be. And I, who have all that sin, am over here. And Jesus, who has spent 30, 33 years living a righteous life, always doing what pleased the Father. He has infinite righteousness, and I have seemingly infinite sin. And what's happening even here in the garden is my sin, my guilt, my shame is being transferred to Jesus so he can bear it for me in the hope that his righteousness will be transferred to my account so that I will then become worthy on account of his worth, his credit, his honor, his excellence credited to my account, even though I'm still a sinner. Uh, The Father is saying to Jesus in the garden, Son, you can have all these followers of yours, but there's going to be hell to pay, quite literally. Hell is not necessarily so much just like fire and brimstone. All the pictures that you have of hell are are almost certainly wrong. Uh, There's not a guy in in red pajamas and a pointy tail and and horns with a pitchfork. Uh, The the references in the Bible are that uh, the devil is actually punished there. He's not in charge. I don't know where that came from. Uh, But uh, we we have various descriptions of hell, most of them from the lips of Jesus, and they're all different. Uh, You know, in fact, he refers to it in one one occasion as, as the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that is a picture of, not of heat, but of cold. Uh, not of fire, but of darkness. Uh, St. Paul talks about being, you know, expelled from the presence of God or shut out from the presence of God. There are various images here, but the thought is a life that has been spent putting God at a distance, that that pattern will only expand to infinity as you are further and further and further away from the blessing and favor of God and shut out from everything that is good and lovely and beautiful for which you were made. This expulsion from God's presence, the rejection of the Father. The Father is saying to Jesus, you can have all these followers of yours, but there will be hell to pay, the hell that I deserve for my sin." the hell that we all deserve. And Jesus hears the Father, Father, and he says, okay, if there's no other way, 
then give me hell. And that's what we're seeing as Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, which was filled full strength with the wine of his fury. This is why Jesus weeps in the garden. He's already losing his relationship with the Father. He is already feeling the coldness. He is holding the cup of God's wrath. And he is weighing the wrath of God that he must drink against the love and passion that he has for you. And he's taking the cup and he's taking it up to his lips and he's pressing against his lips and he's tilting it inward. And he goes to the cross where he drinks it. And he drank it for you. He drank it to the dregs so that if you are in Jesus, if he is your savior, if he's your Lord, then there's not a drop of wrath left for you anywhere in the cosmos, not in the past, not in the future. He has drunk it and drunk it to the dregs. He has borne your sin and you bear it no more. Tim Keller talks about the role the Garden of Gethsemane had in his understanding. He says this, he says, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that I came finally to grips. I made my peace, as it were, with the wrath of God. Now, it might shock some of you that a a preaching minister was struggling with the very idea of a God of wrath, a God who sends people to hell. And then it was studying the Garden of Gethsemane when I finally came to peace with it because I realized this. The reason why people get rid of the idea of hell and wrath is because they want a more loving God. They say, I can't believe in hell and wrath because because I want a more loving God. And I came to realize, he says, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that if you get rid of the idea of hell and wrath, you actually end up with a less loving God. He writes, because if there is no wrath by God or sin, and there is no such thing as hell, not only does that actually make what happened to Jesus inexplicable, Jesus staggering the way he is, asking God, is there any other way, sweating blood, you know, it means that he was wimpier than hundreds of his followers if there was nothing like God's wrath. But the main thing is if you, if you don't believe in wrath and hell, it trivializes what he's done. If you get rid of a God who has wrath and hell, you've got a God who loves us in general, but that's not as loving as as the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, who loves us with a costly love. Look what it cost. Look what Jesus did. Look what he was taking. You, You get rid of wrath and hell, he's not taking anything close to this. And therefore, what you've done is you've just turned his incredible act of self sacrificial love. You know, absorbing the wrath of God, absorbing hell itself for you. You've taken that incredible act of love and you've turned it into something very trivial and very small. And if the anticipation of these sufferings, if the very first taste of these sufferings in Gethsemane sent the Son of God into shock, then one must wonder what it must have been like to drink that cup to the very bottom. This is why early church leaders included Gethsemane in all three synoptic gospels, friends, because this is the gospel. This is Jesus bearing our shame and our guilt, taking the full weight of, of justice deserved, the justice that was coming against us, the wrath that was coming against us, like a barreling train that was going to crush us completely. It's the only hope we have in the face of suffering 
and hardship and loss and persecution and ultimately death is that Jesus loved you and he drank the cup that was intended for you so that by his death you would have certainty of eternal life. It's a leader sacrificing himself in order to save those who didn't deserve it. I don't know if you saw on, on Facebook uh, the account of the police officer with the New Jersey Transit Department, uh, Officer Victor Ortiz, had received reports of a man with disorderly behavior on board a train. And Officer Ortiz stepped in to intercept the suspect, and after a verbal confrontation, Officer Ortiz watched as the, the suspect, who was distraught, jumped onto the train tracks, and, and the man sat down, and, and he was shouting that he wanted to die. We've got closed-circuit video of it, um, if we could get that video. Uh, here, Officer Ortiz is trying. There is a train that is coming down the track very rapidly. The man wants to die. The officer is on the track with him, trying to pull him off as he resists, as he doesn't want to get off. He wants to be dead, and the officer is risking his very life in order to save this man. And the train is coming faster and faster. It is barreling toward him, and, 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 and the guy, he, he wants to die, and Officer Ortiz is saying, you're not going to die, you're not going to die. Right as the train comes. Officer Ortiz survived, but what will be remembered was his willingness to lay down his life for a depressed and disorderly criminal who despaired of life itself. And that's what Jesus did for you. That train barreling down the track, that train of God's wrath and fury at a cruelty and rebellion that's in my own heart. All of our sins, they were barreling down toward us. They were finally going to catch up with us. And the judgment for them was barreling toward you with a fierceness that you could never have imagined. And you were sitting there, guilty, on the tracks, without hope, unable to move, unable to escape, when the Son of God took note of you. His heart reached out to you. He felt pity on you. Jesus, the Son of God, felt compassion and tenderness toward you. He felt kindness and empathy for you. And so he did what he taught us to do. He dove onto the tracks to push you to safety, even when you weren't sure you wanted that. And he did it ultimately at the cost of his own life and so much more. He took the full force of the blow of the wrath of God That was a train that was barreling more quickly that no one could ever stop it. And Jesus, in allowing it to run over his body and soul, caught up underneath those gears and those wheels, ultimately brought that train, that engine, to a grinding halt if you were found in Christ. So that now you are the object of God's continual delight, continual love, as he no longer sees your sin but washes you and clothes you in the righteousness of God. Of Christ. Jesus did that for us, for you. And it wasn't an impulse decision, but one he and the Father had decided long beforehand that he would drink the cup in your behalf as the Father turned his back on him instead of on you. What does it mean for you who believe? It means when you're suffering, when you're hurting, When you feel abandoned and rejected and you're feeling utter despair, there will be all sorts of thoughts that come into your mind as you're asking, God, why is this happening to me? 
And the Bible doesn't always give us an answer. It talks about a fall, that things weren't meant to be this way. It gives us some guidance, some general pointers, but it never tells you why you're going through the specific suffering you're going through. But of all the possible explanations, the one that will come in your mind the most quickly and stick there the most powerfully is the explanation that God must not love you. And that is the one possible explanation that Gethsemane rules out. Because here you see a Savior in Jesus, eager and willing to suffer with you and to suffer for you, to suffer the infinite wrath of God on your behalf because he loves you. Here on his knees, bleeding tears of blood, already experiencing the abandonment, the isolation, the rejection of the Father, the scourging and the whips and the forsakenness, here we see a God who enters into our suffering and does so to the fullest extent possible. A God who chooses to suffer in order to rescue the ones he loves. He chooses pain and grief and sorrow and rejection. A God of love who takes all of the intense evil, injustice, and cruelty, absorbs it for our sake, and then drinks into his soul the justice and wrath of a holy God, doing it for our sake. Because in our tears and our pain and our suffering, he wants you to know that he loves you. As Kara Tippett's cancer spread, Kara Tippett, courageously embraced her situation and trusted it to God. She told her, her friends and her family, that she believed that cancer was not the point, but that Jesus was the point. She explained to them that she believed that suffering was not just an absence of beauty, but it was a beautiful opportunity to understand God's love on a deeper level. And toward the end of her life in 2015, Kara wrote down these words to the ones she loves. She says, my little body has grown tired of the battle and treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath and with it I pray I would live well and fade well by degrees doing both, living and dying as I have moments left to live. I get to draw close To people I love, I get to kiss them and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and my fears for the moments of my loved ones. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus and he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wondering over his love, it's going to cover us all. And it will carry us. It will carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. In the midst of tears and loss and pain and fear, she knew Jesus loved her. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I give you thanks for the love that you showed Kara Tippett for the love that you showed those cowering disciples who failed you so badly. I thank you, Father, for the love that you have shown us in giving us your son. I thank you for the wrath that he absorbed as you are righteous and merciful. 
and you gave us one to bear our sins so that we might have life and be free. Lord, we consecrate to you the elements on this table. Help us to see Jesus. Lord Jesus, come and visit us, we pray. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. It is good and right to give God thanks and praise because of the infinite love with which he suffered by giving up his son. Some of you know what it's like to lose somebody that you really, really, really love. Somebody that you've loved for an eternity. And the father gave us his son. He handed him over because in his love, there was one thing that he could not do without. And that's you. If you're ready to come to Jesus, then this sacrament is for you. Uh, You don't have to be a member of this church or this denomination. If you are a Christian uh, and been baptized and, and whatever church you're a part of, Uh, then this is for you, but Jesus requires that anybody who comes to him in this table understand that you are coming to him, uh, to Jesus. He is the head over this sacrament. It is not us. This is not the Presbyterian's table. It's the Lord's table. And in coming to the Lord, he instructs that you should come believing him to be your savior, that he has washed you, and knowing that in your heart, that he has loved you, that he's your redeemer. And to come saying, Lord, I can't do this Christianity thing very well. I need your help what we call repentance, where you come with empty hands saying, Lord, I'm I'm willing, help me. And that you come choosing as an act of the will to love one another, uh, whatever your difference is, just as God in Christ has loved you. And if you can come in that way, then come. If you're not there yet right now, that's that's okay. We pray that, that God will get you there. Don't do anything that's not true to where you are in your spiritual journey. But we want you to be able to come because it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus Christ took bread and having given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to you, his disciples. And he said, this is my flesh. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Therefore, let us keep the feast. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which my the chosen one bring many sons to glory.